You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 184, Michianza and Baron Hill. Now, for the last couple of weeks, I talked about the British occupation of Philadelphia and the experience of the local militia immediately outside of Philadelphia during the winter of 1777-78. The takeaway from that is that the British were secure in the city and that the militia were not terribly helpful and nearly got wiped out at the British attack at Crooked Billet. The only thing that prevented the complete destruction of the militia was the men's ability to run and hide. Over that winter, the Continental Army was focused on its own survival out at Valley Forge and not interacting with the British very much at all. The Americans' real enemy that winter was the chronic shortages of just about everything. Despite those shortages, the Army was drilling under Baron von Steuben and hoping to emerge in the spring as a credible fighting force. With the Pennsylvania militia dispersed following Crooked Billet, And with the coming of warmer weather, General Washington grew concerned that the British might attempt an offensive on Valley Forge itself. To make sure this did not happen, he deployed a division to move closer to Philadelphia to keep an eye on the British. And he handed command of this division of Continentals to Major General Lafayette. Now recall that the Marquis de Lafayette had been a Continental officer for less than a year. The 19-year-old French army captain with zero combat experience had received a commission as a major general based primarily on his willingness to work without pay and the hope that his family connections with the French court might help to secure the much-needed alliance. After he had first joined, Lafayette served as an aide to General Washington. Certainly an honorable position, but not one normally performed by a major general. After all, he was serving alongside two colonels, Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence. Washington genuinely liked the young man, but was not sure he was quite ready to command an entire army. At Brandywine, Lafayette showed bravery under fire and received a battlefield injury. This helped to enhance his reputation with both Washington and the Continental Congress. The injury, however, meant that Lafayette spent the next couple of months convalescing up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. When he returned to duty in November, Washington assigned him a small independent command. Lafayette led a minor raid on a British camp in Gloucester, New Jersey, near Philadelphia, something I discussed in an earlier episode, and that was enough to win command of a division. After Congress dismissed Major General Adam Stephen for his conduct at Germantown, Washington gave Lafayette command of that division. After that, Congress assigned Lafayette to lead a new offensive to retake Quebec. The thought was that a French leader might inspire the local Quebecois to rise up against the British and join the movement for independence. While that mission began with great intentions, it ran smack into the reality that there were no supplies to begin the campaign. The whole plan fell apart before it even got started. Lafayette had to return to Valley Forge, having accomplished nothing. With all that experience, and with the young general no longer a teenager, having had a birthday in the fall, 
Washington turned over one-third of his active army, about 2,200 soldiers, to Lafayette, so that he could lead them toward Philadelphia and protect the rest of the army at Valley Forge from a surprise attack. And when we consider the Marquis's meteoric rise to power in the Continental Army, it might be a good idea to consider the entire top leadership of the army at this point. The army had begun by assigning top leadership posts to men of, let's be generous and call it mixed experience. The first three years of the war had shaken out many of the bad ones and led to the loss of many good ones. Lafayette was the 18th major general commissioned by the Continental Congress. The most senior major general in the army when the war began, Artemis Ward, was a New England officer who resigned shortly after the war left New England in the spring of 1776. The next most senior officer, Charles Lee, was a British prisoner of war. Number three, General Philip Schuyler, had lost his command just before the Battle of Saratoga and was at this point still living at home, although technically still serving as a general. Number four, Israel Putnam, had not inspired much faith as a commander and had been pushed off to a relatively unimportant command in upstate New York. The next two generals, Montgomery and Thomas, both died during the Quebec campaign. Montgomery was killed in the attack on Quebec, and Thomas died of smallpox. Number seven, General Horatio Gates, was still an important commander, but was on the outs with Washington after the circumstances surrounding the Conway cabal. Number eight, William Heath, had lost Washington's confidence after a series of botched commands. At the time, he was in command of British prisoners from Saratoga. Uh, the next general, Joseph Spencer, had resigned in January of 1778 following an investigation into a botched attack on Rhode Island. Although he was acquitted, the general had had enough of the army. Spencer had always been more politician than soldier, and he returned to a prominent role in Connecticut politics. Number 10, John Sullivan, had just faced a court-martial for his actions at Brandywine and his attack on Staten Island. However, this general still had Washington's confidence. Washington had just deployed him to Providence, Rhode Island, to replace General Spencer following that resignation. Now, some had wanted number 11, General Nathaniel Green, to take that post in Rhode Island since he was from Rhode Island. However, Washington had recently pressured Green to become quartermaster general of the Continental Army meaning that, at least for the moment, he was no longer in a position to assume command of soldiers in the field. General Benedict Arnold had only recently moved up to number 12 on the list. Recall that Congress had appointed five other major generals in February 1777, skipping over the more senior Brigadier General Arnold. When it finally granted the commission after Arnold's leadership at Danbury, Arnold was number 17 on the list. Arnold had tried to resign just before heading off to Saratoga because Congress would not make him more senior. After his more critical role in winning Saratoga, Congress finally granted his request for retroactive seniority, putting him at number 12 on the list. However, Arnold had severely injured his leg at Saratoga, and this prevented him from assuming any command for the time being. Number 13 on the list, William Alexander a.k.a. Lord Sterling, 
was one of the newest major generals that still had Washington's favor. He commanded one of Washington's divisions. Four other generals who had received their appointments on the same day as Sterling, Thomas Mifflin was the failed quartermaster who was now serving on the board of war with General Gates. Arthur Sinclair was court-martialed after giving up Fort Ticonderoga. And although he did not get another field command, he did continue to serve as an aide to General Washington. Adam Stephen, as I just said, had been removed from the army for his performance at Germantown. Benjamin Lincoln was still respected, but was recovering from injuries after Saratoga. So that brings us to number 18 on the list, Lafayette, who had made his way to becoming a division commander. Now, just to round out that list for you, there were six more major generals by the spring of 1778. Philip de Caldray had served for about a month before drowning. Johann de Cobb, who had arrived with Lafayette, was now also a division commander. Robert Howe of North Carolina was serving as commander of the Southern Department. Alexander McDougall was running the show in upstate New York, along with Israel Putnam. And Thomas Conway had received his commission in December 1777, but had resigned by April following his tiff with General Washington. Friedrich von Steuben, who had done such a great job chaining the soldiers at Valley Forge, finally received recognition in May 1778 with his own commission as Major General as he continued to serve as Inspector General of the Army. Von Steuben would be the last Major General to be commissioned for the next two and a half years. Congress would not commission anyone else until late 1780. In case you were wondering, that left General William Thompson of Pennsylvania as the senior brigadier in the Army. Thompson, who had been the 12th brigadier appointed, had been taken prisoner in 1776, just after he received his commission. He would remain a prisoner until late 1780, hence no promotion. Next was number 21, General John Nixon, who had been so badly wounded at Saratoga that he could never take up a command again. The senior brigadier that was still on active duty was Samuel Parsons, who had originally been number 24 on the list. By this time, aside from Thompson and Nixon, all of those above Parsons had been promoted, killed, or had resigned. Parsons was serving in upstate New York, and he would finally break through to Major General in October 1780, when Congress finally resumed promotions. So that's your basic summary of how the Continental Command stood in the spring of 1778. Meanwhile, the British leadership was also undergoing a major change. General William Howe had tendered his resignation the prior fall, frustrated by London's failure to provide him with sufficient soldiers to run all the military campaigns that he thought necessary to crush the rebellion. Back in London, as I discussed back in episode 174, the leadership was dealing with the loss of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga and the entry of France into the war. The administration had accepted Howe's resignation and ordered General Henry Clinton to take command in North America. In March, Clinton received his orders to take command and sent much of his army off to protect the West Indies and abandon Philadelphia. When General Clinton arrived in Philadelphia in early May, he brought his orders from London and worked with General Howe to transition the leadership. 
the two men spent the next couple of weeks discussing the state of affairs and their next steps. Meanwhile, most of the British officers were sorry to see Howe go. Despite his inability to bring the war to an end, Howe remained a popular leader with the officer corps. Two of the junior officers, Captain John Andre and Captain Oliver Delancey, raised a collection of 3,312 guineas from the rest of the officers to throw a massive farewell party for General Howe. That would be about $750,000 in inflation-adjusted U.S. dollars. Of course, many people purchased their own costumes and other items for the event, with total expenses for the party running several million dollars in inflation-adjusted terms. Andre called it the Michianza, which derives its name from the Italian word for medley. This was supposed to be the party to end all parties. They scheduled it for May 18th to begin at 4 p.m. and would run until 4 a.m. the following morning. Among the events was a regatta of decorated barges down the Delaware River with cannon salutes. The lead barge was General Howe, along with his brother, Admiral Lord Howe, and General Sir Henry Clinton. Along with them were guests, including General Howe's mistress, Elizabeth Loring. At least 27 barges moved down the Delaware from Knight's Wharf near Vine Street to a point near Old Swedes Church south of the city, about a mile and a half in total. Accompanying them were at least three bands aboard the barges. As the flotilla passed Navy warships or regiments lined up along the shore, cannon salutes marked their passage. When the lead ship reached its destination, all the ships stopped while all the bands played God Save the King. Next, the honorees and their guests, led by the military marching bands, paraded through the streets to the estate of Joseph Wharton, known as Walnut Grove, just south of the city. Again, they paraded past regiments that lined up to honor their commander and thousands of locals who turned out for the parade. The group passed under two triumphal arches, one built to honor Admiral Howe, and the other built to honor General Howe. At Walnut Grove, the participants enjoyed a mock tournament of knights with 14 young maidens dressed in silk dresses made just for this event. The knights on horseback also wore white satin garments. So, yeah, there were knights in white satin. There was also a mock jousting tournament where soldiers engaged in pretend jousts and single combat, proclaiming their love for certain young ladies on the stage. It was here that John Andre declared his love for a young woman named Peggy. Many of you who know about Andre may think that this was Peggy Shippen. In fact, no, it was Peggy Chu, the daughter of Benjamin Chu, the colonial chief justice whose house had played such a prominent role at the Battle of Germantown. Peggy Shippen and her sister had planned to attend. However, their Quaker father saw the satin costume that the girls intended to wear and found them indecent. He forbade his daughters from attending, and Peggy responded by what her father called, quote, a bout of hysteria. Following the tournament, the party moved to a grand hall of the home, which was extravagantly decorated 
for the event using what was described as a Turkish theme. Celebrants enjoyed drinks and light snacks, then enjoyed playing cards for some time with real gold. House card game of choice was a game called Pharaoh. After dark, the guests, along with the rest of the city, were treated to a fireworks display that took place near the Victory Arches south of town. At midnight, the guests sat down for a grand banquet. In a city that had been perpetually short on rations, the banquet was especially extravagant. A band played through the night, and Captain Andre read a poem to honor General Howe. The celebrations continued until dawn on the 19th, when revelers finally made their way home. A celebrants aside, most of the locals found the event inappropriate. Mrs. Henry Drinker, a Quaker, wrote in her diary, quote, This day may be remembered by many from the scenes of folly and vanity promoted by the officers of the army under the pretext of showing respect to General Howe. How insensible do those people appear while our land is so greatly desolated and death and sore destruction has overtaken and impends over so many. Mrs. Drinker was not alone in thinking the extravagance was inappropriate. Ambrose Searle, the secretary to Admiral Lord Howe, wrote in his journal, quote, Our enemies will dwell upon the folly and extravagance of the Michianza with pleasure. Every man of sense among ourselves, though not unwilling to pay a due respect, was ashamed at this mode of doing it. That said, it was a night that few would ever forget. Just as the British began the Michianza on the evening of May 18th, Lafayette had already moved his division out of Valley Forge, crossed the Schuylkill River, and set up camp on Barren Hill, just outside the British lines. Washington had ordered him to, quote, march toward the enemy lines so that he could be used as a buffer for the rest of the army at Valley Forge and to stop any smaller incursions into the area. He was also supposed to obtain intelligence about enemy movements. This was Lafayette's first independent command of any size. Lafayette's Continentals forded the Schuylkill River and took a position on the high ground known as Barren Hill, near the Schuylkill River. Washington had advised Lafayette not to camp in one place since the British would almost certainly launch an attack. Lafayette set up camp on May 18th, and the British discovered their new neighbors almost immediately. On the evening of May 19th, only a few hours after the end of the Michianza, the British commanders received word of the force under the command of General Lafayette. They viewed this as an opportunity to capture some prisoners, and especially the boy general. This would be an embarrassment to both America and France. Within hours, the bulk of the British and Hessian forces around Philadelphia had turned out, around 16,000 soldiers. Part of the reason for the overwhelming force was that the British hoped that Washington might march from Valley Forge to try to rescue Lafayette's division. If he did, it might give the British one final chance to defeat the Continentals entirely before abandoning Philadelphia. The soldiers deployed in the pre-dawn hours of May 20th, expecting to bag their quarry quickly and return back to the city the same day. General Howe had even made plans for a victory dinner in Philadelphia, 
hoping to have Lafayette as a guest of honor. Lafayette's position on the heights just east of the Schuylkill River prevented a retreat from that direction. The British sent a division of about 5,000 soldiers under General Grant to the north so that the Continentals could not escape from the direction they came. They sent another division under the command of General Charles No Flints Gray to attack the American left flank and keep them pinned against the river. Meanwhile, General Howe was given the honor of personally leading the main force, along with General Clinton, that would assault Barron Hill from the south and demand Lafayette's surrender. The capture of General Lafayette and one-third of the Continental Army would have been a crushing blow. Fortunately for the Continentals, that would not happen. The Continentals picked the position because the heights gave them a good view of the surrounding area. Sentries were able to see the British Army marching toward them from far away, even though it was a nighttime advance. Lafayette deployed his Pennsylvania militia, who, as I said, were by this time back under the command of General Potter, James Lacey having left a few weeks earlier, as I discussed last week. So while that happened, Lafayette sent General Enoch Poor with the bulk of his army along a sunken road that was out of the view of the British. They would move north back toward a ford across the Schuylkill River and make their escape. Now the escape was dependent on Potter's Pennsylvania militia, putting up enough of a defense to halt the British under General Grant and prevent them from cutting off the escape route. Potter, with his 600 militia, took one look at the 5,000 regulars advancing on him and decided, yeah, I'm not doing this. His troops scattered into the woods and made their escape without a shot fired. As Lafayette put in his report, General Potter, quote, thought proper to retire, end quote, from the field. However, Lafayette remained on the heights with a rear guard. He ordered a small number of troops to march towards Grant's regulars, appearing to be the head of a larger column. This forced Grant to halt his advance and put his men in line for battle. Another group of British dragoons rode toward the Continental Lines, only to run into a company of 50 Oneida Indians who were serving in the Continental Army. The Indians gave a war whoop as they jumped out of the bushes. The British dragoons, fearing an Indian ambush, turned and fled. The Indians then caught up with the escaping column before the British figured out that they were such a small force that the British could have easily overrun them. As the British halted their advance and prepared for battle, Lafayette and the remaining rearguard hightailed it out of there, making their way down the sunken road and across the Schuylkill via a ford to the other side. The British, finding the Americans had escaped, were not prepared to chase them across the Pennsylvania countryside. Instead, they withdrew back to the city. The Battle of Barren Hill, therefore, only led to some very minor skirmishing. Some reports indicate three Americans were killed and nine British. Washington was pleased to hear of Lafayette's escape. The British leadership were frustrated at their inability to surround and capture this inferior force with its back against the river. A few days later, General Howe boarded a ship for London, never to return. Next week, the British conduct several spring raids in the Rhode Island area, which we know collectively as the Mount Hope Bay Raids. 
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Train Ants, George Davis, and Lewis White for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to George Hunter for support at the Robert Morris Circle level. I also want to congratulate Sean Eliasson, who won the Join or Die Tankard, and Len Williams, who won the 1776 t-shirt in our raffle. Everyone who signed up for the podcast mailing list had a chance to win. If you still want to sign up, just go to my website or blog and look for the MailChimp link. The mail list will keep you up to date on the podcast and send you an update whenever a new episode is available. I'm also including other information about live events, and uh, links that are relevant to whichever week's episode there is. I just sent out my first email to the list recipients last week. If any of you have any suggestions about what else should be included or excluded from the email, let me know. So this week, I caught up everyone on the status of all the Continental Generals. Then we heard about the biggest party of the war, possibly the biggest party of the 18th century that did not involve royalty. Let's face it, how many parties get that much discussion more than two centuries after the fact? One point I thought I should mention, when I make these episodes, there are often conflicting sources with different sets of facts. Sometimes I note that when I'm telling the story, sometimes I just present one source and move along. After all, I'm trying to tell a story. I don't want to get caught up in an academic debate about which source is more likely accurate. It just pulls the whole story off on a weird tangent. For example, today I was relating the story of the Michianza, and I noted that Peggy Shippen's father prevented her from attending and that she threw a fit as a result. Now, other sources I've read indicate that Peggy did, in fact, attend the Michianza with her sister. Those sources say that Peggy did not attend are alleged to be part of the Shippen family efforts to minimize their reputation as Tories after the war ended. Although Peggy later moved to England, the rest of her family remained in Philadelphia. I can't really say for certain which version is true. I thought I would pass along at least that there is that dispute. The other thing we covered today was young General Lafayette still trying to make a name for himself. Once again, though, his independent command amounts to, well, much of nothing. His big accomplishment in this case was his ability to escape without getting captured. While I may sound like I'm making light of Lafayette's military accomplishments, and I guess I am, 
Lafayette did become a key component of the war effort via his efforts to further the French military alliance. Even if Lafayette was not by any means single-handedly responsible for the alliance, he did come to personify that alliance in many ways. That, along with several key tours of America after the war to cement his reputation, helped to make Lafayette the iconic figure of the revolution that he has become. If you try to find Baron Hill, where Lafayette made his encampment, you won't find it on any modern maps. That is because they named it Lafayette Hill after the war. Lafayette Hill is a township just outside of the modern city limits of Philadelphia. It's between two other towns named for heroes of the Revolution. Wayne, Pennsylvania, named for General Anthony Wayne, and Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, named for, well, guess who? The war around Philadelphia certainly left its lasting impact. If you want to read more about the British occupation, this week's book recommendation is called With the British Army in Philadelphia, 1777-1778, by John W. Jackson. This is an older book, first published in 1979, I recommended another book by Jackson a few months ago called The Pennsylvania Navy. Jackson wrote a number of other books all related to the American Revolution in the Philadelphia area. Now, this book focuses on the British occupation itself and life in the city during those nine months. It's a good read, but as far as buying it, despite the fact that it's over 50 years old, there are not many used copies around. It's pretty expensive if you find a copy at all. Well, maybe you'll get lucky like me and your library has a copy. If you can get a hold of it, you will find it interesting. Again, the name is With the British Army in Philadelphia, 1777-1778. My online recommendation this week is a pamphlet called Strictures on the Philadelphia Michianza or Triumph Upon Leaving America Unconquered by Israel Mauduit. Now, this was a pamphlet that was published in London in 1779, around the same time that General Howe was being pilloried for his failed strategy in America. The pamphlet includes Thomas Paine's Crisis No. 5, as well as other attacks on the British war effort. As this pamphlet was published during the war, I think it gives a good taste of the rising Whig anti-war sentiment in London. Opponents seem to be becoming more critical of the war and blaming it for the larger war with France. I think this is an interesting look at how civilians were becoming more vocal about government failures in carrying out its war policies. You can search for the document on archive.org or use the direct link on my website. Just go to www.amrevpodcast.com for this week's recommendation. And I also have a link on the page to a Google document, which contains all of my prior recommendations. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>